What's happening, everybody? How you doing? This will be episode 58 of the Strength and Success show, entitled Burn Bright. Just waiting for Riley to jump onto the gram and then send a join request, and her and I will start recording the live broadcast of the Strength and Success show. There it is. View request for Miss Trevithick. She'll pop through in a second. Usually takes about five seconds for her to pop through, and we'll get to the topic of the day, and then all the questions you guys have sent us. We have a lot of questions. Hello. Hello. Did you get a sufficient enough brogue pump for the camera? Yeah, my biceps look great. <laughs> once you What's once you lighten once you lighten the load, the focus on the curl. <laughs> yeah, I apparently cannot curl uh, ninety five pounds for twelve reps, unbeknownst to myself. The worst power lifter in the world. Oh my god, how dare you not <laughs> curl ninety five pounds for twelve reps? Do you need a lift, bro? No, clearly not. <laughs> Embarrassing. <laughs> What's really embarrassing is I think you tried to go heavier on curls than overhead press. Why are you going to call me out like that? <laughs> <laughs> Priorities, man. Priorities. You care more about the biceps than the press. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> the overhead press has never been a strong suit for me. That is, not one that, uh, that is not one that seems to ever get any better. No matter how much I practice it, it never gets any better. Look at that negative attitude. How is it going to get better now? <laughs> well, I don't know. You're probably going to keep programming it for me now, so it's fine. We, yeah, we already talked about this. Uh, high incline dumbbell press, but uh, yeah, no, it's obviously it's an accessory movement, so it's not the priority, but we still want to put some effort in there. But it is pretty funny to watch you actually work on curling more than pressing overhead, so that was actually kind of humorous. Well, my biceps are gooder. My gooder, biceps more are gooder. gooder. More goody. <laughs> I got more goody biceps. Yeah. Listen. For the power lifter, biceps are the calves of the bodybuilder, you know? You can look like you lift, whether you're total sucks or not, if you have some biceps. <laughs> yes. If That's you have my goal. big biceps and you travel around, no one says, do you, do you CrossFit? Uh, when you don't have bi biceps, that's the first thing they're like, oh, do you CrossFit? And rather than have just taken this to be like, yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> well, everyone, everyone always makes a comment to my legs. Like, they'll be like, do you do CrossFit? They're like, Oh, big legs. Do you do CrossFit? And I'm like, no. And they're like, leg press. Yes. That's all I do. <laughs> Every day. That's the secret. One thing. <laughs> Forget about years and years of consistency and effort. It's the leg press. Yeah. My, my volleyball days and all my lifting days, none of those matter. It's just the three sets of leg press that I do every single week. Quarter reps. Dog. Do it. That's, that's totally the... Uh the internet for you you know you see one lifter do something and everyone all of a sudden assumes that's the secret so they start doing it too it's like oh i saw someone so do this so i'm doing it. it's like they were just looking for shit posting content you know yeah. <laughs> they had nothing of value to offer and didn't want to show you their their sub max bench again so here's some shit posting for you you know yeah. oh, that must be the secret yeah well back in their day when they were in high school they could bench press a house you know and back back in back in everyone's always like back in my day when i was in high school i used to be able to that's what people always do to me like i don't know it's always men i don't know if they're trying to like assert some sort of dominance over me because i lift more than them or something but like someone will ask my like i've been asked my max out in public or something before and they're like well how much do you squat and i'll tell them and they'll be like oh well when i was you know when i was lifting a lot i could squat more and i'm like cool there was that guy that we were on the um uh we were on the shuttle bus going to I think I, I think we were going to Iowa or we were in Chicago or something and there was that guy that was like asking us about powerlifting and he used to powerlift and he was like asking me what my best lift was and I said deadlift and he asked how much and I told him and it was more than him and then so then he felt the need to like 
tell me what weight class he was in and all that kind of stuff too to like justify the fact that I deadlift more than him or something it was really weird it really wasn't far off um I remember this because I think he said he competed at like 132 or something like that yeah and it was like 132 and you're 148 and he had like a 474 or 480 pole and you have like a 501 and I just looked at this guy I'm like this is a losing battle man <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was like, was, it was like a suit. He oh, was but. throwing everything at you. He's like, at the time, I was the strongest Asian. And I was like, in the 70s? You were like the only one here. <laughs> it was just so weird. Like, you know, I don't think he, I guess I don't think that he expected me to say that it was 501, you know, or something. Because as soon as I said it, he was like, oh, well, I compete at 132. And I was like, cool. <laughs> Congrats. Was Very old, happy for you. The old school powerlifter. It's not even that old school, but a little bit old school. But 10, 15 years ago, the, uh, the Jim Wendler saying, if you weigh less than 200 pounds, you're not a man or whatever. <laughs> I remember seeing that. I'm like, oh, shit. I'm like 201. <laughs> Just made it. <laughs> well, All right, so let's fun. get to our topic of today, which we've titled Burn Bright. And this came about a question that we've gotten about burnout. And Riley brought up some interesting points about not managing stress, not managing schedules, not managing priorities very well. And it goes a little bit beyond that. That's a start of managing schedule, managing priorities, managing um, your schedule and so forth. So you are not overwhelmed. But it also goes into being patient and waiting out for a timeline. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit in other aspects. When a meet is over, you don't have to jump into another immediate meet prep or even right to straight pure powerlifting program. Oftentimes, it's good to take a block or two to have some fun stuff mixed in, maybe some conditioning work. We've talked about Metcon work if you're into that sort of thing, um, playing with new variations of lifts you've never done before, such as a snatch or clean or kettlebell work or strongman stuff. People get burnt out because they get hyper-focused on a goal, but then lose track of the process of the goal, and then they get overwhelmed, and that's when they burn themselves out because they put pressure on themselves to perform at a certain level, but they're not able to maintain the tasks necessary to get to that level. And then, of course, you've created more mental anguish and mental pressure because you said to everyone on the internet, I'm going to add 80 pounds to my total, but you haven't been behaving like you're going to add 80 pounds to your total. So you get overwhelmed, and that overwhelmness leads to that level of burnout. So rather than I'm going to talk about burning in, which is just more a matter of controlling your controllables, your variables, uh, if you have a, a very specific goal, then you have to have a very specific plan. Things won't always go according to the plan. Riley talks about being adaptable often, but at least you have a general outline of what you should be doing first because if it is a goal, it is a priority, you prioritize those things first. That way, if you get them done first part of the day and do the things you have to do, you're going to be less overwhelmed by the other tasks of life. It takes the same energy to do everything we have to do, but if we don't structure and organize it in some way that's cohesive to us, we're going to burn out mentally. Uh, I talk about this at every every seminar that we've done, the difference between the Bulgarians and the Russians was the amount of intensity they put into their training programs. The Bulgarians were always 100%. The Russians then tend to stay between 70 82.5% in building volume in those ranges. The average Russian weightlifter had a career that spanned over 12 and a half years. The average Bulgarian had two and a half to three years before they burned out. And that burnout wasn't just physical, it was mental. We can't redline and go 100% all the time. So even though we have a lot of energy and we have a lot of enthusiasm and maybe a lot of motivation towards the goal, the way to burn in is to timeline that out in tasks and chunks and put it together in a way that's not going to fatigue you. And what I, look, what I mean by that is we always talk about timeline. You know, It's not going to happen in six weeks. It's more likely going to happen in six months. And in some cases, six years, 
be patient for the timeline and don't become consumed and overwhelmed to have to have it now because you're burning yourself out mentally by putting all that pressure on yourself. So the way to burn in is take away the, the timeline burden or extend the timeline to something that's a little bit less hectic for you so you can enjoy the process more and not add to your strain and your burden because that's where you're going to burn out. You can't give 100% all the time, every day, things. You have to pick your priorities. And if you're even doing 90% of the things you're supposed to do, you're going to get so much farther than you thought you could just by adhering to it 90% of the time if it's structured by a plan. Yeah. So with burnout, I don't, I don't want to say that I don't think it exists or whatever. Um, but I do think that it is more prevalent in those who don't have time management and those who lack boundaries. Um, people that lack boundaries are the ones that are going to put so much external pressure on themselves for whatever reason that may be. Um, like when, when I was asked this question in my story, and that's basically what I said on my answer, I was like, you know, uh, are you going to love what you're doing 100% of the time all the time? No, like, you're, there's going to be some days where, you know, you don't feel like doing it like, it may be, you may be doing something you love, like with powerlifting, you know, you may love it. And you like, you really enjoy doing it. But there may be some days where you're like, damn, I don't really feel like going to the gym today. Like, it seems like a chore today, because you have a lot of other things going on. That's that that happens. That's life. We're adults. We all have lots of things going on. We have jobs. We have families. We have pets that are surprisingly really chill and calm right now, which I'm surprised by. Um, but the, you know, like we have a lot of things going on. So it's okay to not be like 100% motivated and driven every single day to do something. But if like majority of the time that you're doing something, you are hating it, you're probably doing the wrong thing. And like you choose your hobbies, you choose what you want to do. So if you don't love it, then don't fucking do it. Um, but I think that like, once I posted this, I actually had someone respond to uh, my story about it. And she was like, why you got to call me out like that, uh, about like lacking boundaries and, um, and time management skills. And she was basically saying that at work, she took on a task that she wanted to get done because she was like, I can do this task better than everyone else that's doing it right now. I'm going to do it myself because she, and she kind of got, she admitted that she kind of got like an ego about it. And she's like, and now that I'm doing the task, I realized that I could use some help and now I'm stressed out by it. And now I feel burnt out. So that's a good example of like, not having the boundaries necessary to appease your own self, basically. So I would probably feel a lot more burnt out if I was trying to run at 100% all the time. Um, and we've talked about in many podcasts before how like, my phone goes off at 9.30. I stop checking work messages at 9.30. Uh, Trevor, I think is 10. I don't know if that's changed, but I think it's 10. Yeah. Um, uh, I generally don't do work messages before 8 a.m. I'm usually, I've been, now I'm up around like 7 to 7.30 because puppy wakes up around that time. So I like to give myself like 30 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes in the morning to not be bombarded immediately with work. So like, I'll take Sophie outside, I will make my coffee, I will start getting like whatever together that I need to get done. And then once I'm settled and have like those things going, then I'll check my messages or my emails or whatever. Um, but those are those are my boundaries right now. If I were to do um, if I were to not if I were to check my phone until midnight, and then I'm just stressing myself thinking out thinking about like what my what my clients sent me or what issues they have or if I immediately when I'm waking up, I'm checking my phone and starting to respond to clients like that's going to stress me out. And that's going to burn me out because 
I have no boundaries. I have no time for myself. Um, I don't go to bed at 930. I probably don't go to bed till 11 or 1130, sometimes 12, depending on what I'm doing. But like it, if I didn't have that downtime, it would be more, it'd be easier for me to feel more burnt out because I'm not allowing myself any time away from the things that can burn you out, which is generally work. Like generally people get most, the most burnt out from work. Um, when we bring other issues in our life, like into lifting, uh, I know people get burnt out with like powerlifting and stuff. And like Trevor makes a really great point about taking breaks and, you know, like doing CrossFit wads and like strongman or whatever, like those will always help too. But another thing that always seems to happen for people is they start to bring their outside life stress into the gym. So while they're in the gym, they're thinking about what they can be doing at work or they're checking emails for what they can do at work or they're engaging in conversations that are stressful to them through text or message or whatever. <laughs> but you're, like you're, <laughs> what? Caitlin last night during her squats, picking up the oh, phone yeah. between her second and third set while I'm rapping her. I'm like, I have to take a 10 minute break to sit there while she had an argument on the phone. I was like, well, it's a good thing her next one's a heavy single. <laughs> yeah, you know, so like if you're if you're not compartmentalizing like when you walk into the gym you walk into the gym and that's you're that's what you're there for so you have to be present in that moment and like you know you can you can be a hundred percent about things and like still be able to put stuff on the back burner like we talk about like balance and things like that and obviously if you want to be the best at something you're going to tip the scale towards being the best but i think that whatever you're doing whatever you're present in is what you should be 100 percent focused on so you can still be balanced right but you may like maybe right now for the next two hours you're focused on hanging out with your friends so be 100 percent about hanging out with your friends for those two hours when you are in the gym you're in there for an hour and a half to two hours whatever be a hundred percent about being in the gym, like whatever it is that you're doing, you have to be present in it. And I think that burnout happens when people are not present in the things that they should be in and they're letting everything kind of seep together. And it's all, it's all interconnecting. And there's no like separation of this is the gym. This is work. This is home. This is friends. This is whatever. There's no separation. You're just letting everything seep and you're not compartmentalizing at all. So I think that burnout when I, when people are exp explaining burnout to me, it's generally always the people that lack those boundaries, those time management skills, that separation. Yeah, no, you're right. And being, being present in the moment is a huge one. We're bombarded with so much stimulus with the cell phones and the smartphones and everything in there. Uh, my phone's on the server. We train that's dedicated my time. That's why I work out during off hours. So I'm not interrupted by people like earlier, Riley wanted to send me the, something for the, for the culture thing. And she couldn't because my phone's on the server. We're sitting there trying to figure out why it wouldn't come through. I was like, Oh, my phone's on the server. <laughs> But you're you're 100 right, and I don't remember if it was James Allen or Victor Franco who talked about it. And you know, until man can sit alone by, in silence in a, in a room by himself, he can never be happy with anything else. And that's just about that's the point of being present in that moment and being comfortable with silence and being comfortable with downtime because we're like go 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 all the time, and our phones are constantly bombarding us with notifications. Uh, Joe, we talked about that a couple of seconds ago. Difficult to do, dude. Shut off every notification you have. There's no emergency that someone needs you for. If it's a true emergency, they're dialing 911. Shut off all the notifications from your main screen. So the phone's on lock screen, you don't see them. You have to go looking for them. So if you're going looking for them, it's your fault. If you're getting bombarded with them just because you picked up your phone, that's a different story. Take them away from the lock screen so none of those notifications are there. Or put your phone face down, put it on airplane mode when you're working out, whatever you got to do. But that's the way to avoid that burnout is to eliminate some of the stimulus we constantly get and being present, like Riley said, being present in the moment. Airplane mode was definitely what I was going to say, because you can still record your videos. You can still do whatever it is that you need to do. But like, 
while you're recording your videos, you won't get drop downs, you won't get calls, you won't get anything. So just turn on airplane mode, everything will come back to you as soon as you turn it back off. But like, nothing will get interrupted, you won't even see anything. So like, I don't have drop downs for um, I think I only have drop downs for email right now. Like I don't have drop downs for Instagram or text messages. So that way, even if I am looking at my phone, like to watch a video or something, I don't see anything that drops down. So it doesn't actually make me want to go check that notification. But airplane mode is a beautiful thing. Yeah, my, mine are off drop down. Like I have to pull it down to see it. I have the drop down so I can shut off where it's just, the, I don't know what it's called. There's like three choices there, the banners or whatever, but you can only see it by scrolling down. So it helps. All right, so, I, uh, fitness mode that turns everything on. Oh, okay, so the iPhone now has a feature that you can turn everything off and you're in fitness mode. Uh, I think it's in like the do you not have a lot. Feature. Yeah, you can, you, there's a lot. There's like the temporary don't disturb, the sleep don't disturb, the focus mode, all those things. All right, uh, so. You have, to have a, you have to have a watch for that though. I don't have an Apple watch because I don't want one. I need to be disconnected <laughs> from my, like, I don't want an Apple watch because I want to be disconnected from my phone sometimes versus if I have an Apple watch on, even if my phone is across the room, I'm going to feel that vibration on my phone. I don't want it. Absolutely yeah. not. We mentioned it a couple episodes ago, the book Unplugged, that talks about taking away that external stimulus so you aren't hyper, you know, um, I just lost my word, but you aren't bombarding yourself with all that external stimulus, which is going to fatigue you out, fatigue your brain out. So having moments where you're unplugged with no phone or no connection, uh, no electricity if you have to. There's a lot of people who just go to the woods for three days without electricity for that reason so they can get rid of burnout and stuff like that. All right, let's get to some of the questions we have. People have sent us questions in Riley's story Q&A every Tuesday. Mine is every Wednesday. And then, of course, you guys can ask questions here on the live. Uh, we'll get to kind of both of them here and there and save some sometimes. So feel free to ask questions on the live as well. We get a little more in-depth answers on here than we do in our stories. What's our first question, Riley? What are some favorite secondary movements to someone looking to strengthen and grow their squat? Uh, you know, for, the first key isn't just saying – this secondary movement is going to grow your squat. The first key is identifying where's your biggest area of opportunity. Is it within the torso or is it within the legs? And, or is it within both? So if it's something like where someone's torso is breaking down, you want to give them things that are going to help them identify their spatial awareness with the torso. So front squats, zercher squats, zombie squats, and even to a degree goblet squats because they're learning position and pattern and building that over time, you can accrue a lot of volume there. Um, but I would identify first what you need. So if you are strong in torso and weak in legs, then it's just spending a lot of time with high bar work and SSB work and getting stronger through the legs, focusing on your quads, building them up because the raw squatter is squatting through the quads. It just has to have a braced torso. So it's not a, as simple as saying, these are the best secondary exercises. It's identifying your needs first. If you're getting stuck coming out of a hole, then chances are it's a level of adductor strength, glute strength, and possibly torso, your torso is crumbling, then you need to work on that anterior core. If you're getting stuck like slightly above parallel and you're having trouble finishing, then it's quad strength. You need to work on building those quads within those patterns. So high bar squats, uh, hack squats with feet close, um, Hindu squats, like the support Hindu squats to really focus on identifying how to use your quads, things of that nature. And if it's something like out of the hole where you have adductor strength, Front foot elevated, Bulgarian split squats, and Copenhagen's are going to help pick up that other strength. So it's just a matter of identifying your need first and not making a blanket statement like this is the best secondary exercise for, for building a squat. Where do you lose yours is what we'd have to identify first. I will say, though, that like 90, I feel like 80 to 90% of lifters can probably always benefit from like a high bar squat after their main work. Um, because like that's going to emphasize your torso and your quads, which is like Trevor's mentioning where majority of raw squatters lose their squats. Um, 
and it seems like everyone hates high bar. So um, they probably hate high bar because it's significantly worse than their low bar. So I would say as a general statement, you could probably throw in more high bar and you'll see that as your high bar increases, your low bar is going to increase as well. I've done something recently with a lot of athletes that's worked really well of progressing from the hardest to the easiest of going a moderate amount of volume of front squat, moderate amount of volume of high bar, and then a moderate amount of volume of low bar squat. So they're training all three patterns and getting everything starting from the anterior core, starting from the extended range of motion of the high bar squat, and then going to the low bar squat. And it's worked really, really well. Like, example, Melissa did that. And she just took her sleeves max for like triples. And it's just one of those things where it's, it's building from the torso down, not from the legs up. Because it doesn't matter how strong your legs are if your torso can't hold it, and vice versa. It doesn't matter how strong your torso is if your legs can't move it. So building from both ways, you know, building from the torso down and work your way through there. Um, but yeah, Danny Masinsic, 953, the all-time world record squat. We live in a world of high bar all year round. And I wouldn't put in low bar squats for him literally until about eight to nine weeks out from a meet. Actually, about 11 weeks after when we start throwing wraps, I was when he goes low bar. Uh, we even started with high bar wraps, this, this go around when he smoked the 953. Uh, we didn't smoke it, but he met, hit the 953. <laughs> he was like, he goes, that's the first time I ever had to work for a squat. But for four years now, we've lived in a world of high bar, high bar, high bar. And so he squatted 953 in wraps, but lives in a world of like 600 to 700 in high bar. It just shows you how much, if it's actually building the primary movers, it's going to carry over. Then you just have to get the torso strong enough to hold the weight. Yeah, uh, we did that with me for a little bit, like front bar, uh, front bar, front squat, high bar, and then low bar. And that seemed to work really well. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy a front squat before a low bar or any sort of squat just because that's where I typically lose my squat is my upper back like have my shoulders internally rotate and with the high bar or excuse me with the front squat first it forces me to actually engage my upper back uh, keep my shoulders externally rotated so that's something that I actually enjoy front squats before my squats but I also really like front squats because I'm pretty good at them so I enjoy them most people don't uh, yeah, it's something I kind of lifted and borrowed from, from Jane Ira, and he used to do it all the way through meets where he would actually do meet warm-ups front squat all the way up until like 600 and then switch to back squat. And he was an 800 plus squeeze squatters at like 220, 242, whatever he was at, but he's one of the best squatters in the world at the time. Uh, still is. But that was something he did progressively was he did all his warm-ups front squat and then switched to back squat as it got too heavy. And so it builds an absolutely exceptional pattern. He had gigantic quads. Yeah. Imagine having big quads means that you'll probably have a good, decent size squat. Yeah, typically, yeah, for the raw lifter, anyways. <laughs> All right, what's our next question? All right, uh, what does your diet look like on training and non-training days at the moment? Just check out my story lately. My diet's not looking fantastic. Um, <laughs> my meals are, but the the bags of candy aren't. But I'm having having some fun with that. But people seem to be enjoying the the candy selection as of late. Easter's over. So I think I have like four or five more bags of candy to go through and then Easter's fully over, which is good. Because Easter's definitely my favorite candy season between the jelly beans and the chocolates. Um, my diet is a little different than Riley's diet. We, we actually have similar qualities of like the amount of times and when we usually eat for the most part. But um, I prefer to have foods that are fast and easy. I don't like to sit there and have a long meal. She'll cook everything out individually and fresh every time. Uh, I'm okay with leftovers. She's not. So... Like for a morning for me, it's usually either deli meat and fruit or oatmeal and a shake just because it's convenient and easy and both digest easily and I can train on that at, at 11. Then I'll have usually oatmeal and a shake again post-workout and then I start getting more into solid foods and bars. So I'll have like chicken and rice or, or just an abundance of teriyaki sauce because it's delicious with my chicken. Um, 
I just toggle through that. So chicken or steak, whatever I bought for the grocery store and push, push that through. Um, Riley's not very different, but I'll let her answer that. But really for me, I just, I get hungry a lot and fast and I get most hungry late in the evening. So I start with my smallest meals and just focus on hydration mostly through the morning before I train. And then my meals get bigger throughout the day goes on because that's what I'm hungriest is later in the day. It's not intermittent fasting. I don't not eat for 16 hours. I eat all fucking day from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed. But I start with the smallest meals and work my way to the bigger meals because I'm ravenous at night. So. Um, yeah, so I haven't really, I haven't been tracking for a little while. Um, not for any particular reason, just haven't necessarily needed to. I am getting back on it though because I'm getting a little bit heavier than what I prefer, especially with like, prep coming up. Um, but um, the there's a couple things that are always constant, it seems for me. My breakfast seems to constantly always be like turkey bacon and some form of carb. So that could be um, English muffin. That was, that's generally like a favorite of mine is like turkey bacon and English muffin. And I put either like peanut butter or a jelly on it. Um, this morning I actually had turkey bacon and then I had I like dry cereal. I like cereal. I love cereal, but I really enjoy eating dry cereal. So I had um, the French toast crunch cereal this morning with my turkey bacon and my coffee. So that seems to be something that's really consistent for me is like my breakfast doesn't change too, too much. Um, I always consistently after a workout have like a quarter or a half of a glam cookie that has been a constant for probably like a year honestly um so that's one thing that doesn't ever change and once a week i have tacos because i love tacos so um aside from that things have not been super super consistent lately and i tend to be someone who gets busy and kind of forgets to eat so i'm a, i'm like i like to eat out of convenience i guess you could say so like a bar or a protein shake is something that i generally will gravitate towards because it's something easy for me to grab while i am busy like when I'm stressed or when I have things going on, I, it's like I basically shut off that ghrelin sensation to my stomach that says you're hungry. And I can just go for like hours without eating very much the opposite of Trevor. Um, <laughs> so I, have to remind my, I have to, I have to remind myself to eat. So I am getting back on, like I re I re put the RP app back on my phone um, just to give me like a good outline. They don't tell me what to eat. It just gives me like a target for my like protein, carbs and fats and everything. So I try to do that. Um, but yeah, I do like to make everything fresh. I actually did eat chicken from the Tupperware yesterday and I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it either. So maybe like a couple times a week, I'll be lazy and eat something from Tupperware. But <laughs> I tend to gravitate towards um, like chicken and vegetables or chicken and rice for like lunch is. Um, I like salmon too, so I eat it. I, I eat salmon a couple times a week. Um, I order the Piedmontese steak still. So I will have, like, I had Piedmontese steak two nights ago. Um, those are higher in protein and they're a little bit better uh, macronutrient-wise for you than, like, a normal steak, I guess. Um, off training days, I just eat lower carbs and a little bit higher fat. I don't operate really, really well off of high fat. Every time I, I like, increase my fats, I always feel very sluggish and just off. Um, so I don't increase my fats too much, but I definitely bring my carbs down. Protein stays the same all the time. Protein, I try to get at least my body weight. That's the one thing that struggles the most for me is getting like my protein in. Um, 
carbs are no problem. I fucking love carbs. So that's not a big deal. But um, so right now it's not super like my diet isn't super consistent for training or non training days. Um, I just need to focus more on getting the protein in again, and making sure that I'm consistently doing that because when I consistently do that, I feel good. My body composition is better. Um, my weight tends to come down a little bit more too. So I'm pretty active with like the puppy now. So that's not really an issue of like getting my steps in and whatever. Um, but I could definitely clean up my diet to bring down some inflammation bloat. Yeah. And that's actually uh, touches on our beginning subject of, of burnout, taking diet breaks. You know, I'm a lot more strict the closer I start getting to meets and whatnot because I have a weight class to make and whatnot. But when we're away from meets or we're traveling, I'm relaxed on the diet a little bit within reason, you know. Um, but that's something that also helps avoid burnout is giving yourself mental breaks. You don't need to track 365 days a year all the time and make sure you're, you know, the only thing you really need to make sure you're hitting is a protein goal at that point. But if you're over-tracking and being over-meticulous and not allowing yourself to have any room to relax, that's how you're going to burn out as well. So it actually is an in-depth good question. Uh, you know, I don't have much difference between my training days and non-training days, except for non-training days are usually a little bit lower in carbon. That's it. The food choices kind of stay the same. I'm consistent. There's a question from, from uh, Kyle here, Barbara Viking. I'm transitioning to the pack back head for conventional. I have noticed a loss of speed off the floor. How would you suggest getting that pop back without throwing the head up? Uh, that's a simple answer. That means you're focusing on the head so much you're losing attention on the bar. That's why you're losing speed off the floor. I would focus on your bar slack and tension. And I would, the last thing I would do is when you take that breath is throw your head back as a momentum driver. So slack out the bar, tighten your body, and then take your breath with your head forward. And then as soon as you pull your head back from the breathing in, use that momentum to drive you up. Because that's a lever far away from the bar. So it acts like a wrench that's really far from the bar. So make the head pack the last thing you do, not the first thing you do. And use that momentum of that head pack to start driving you up and back. I also feel like sometimes with the head pack, um, people overdo that. And they'll be looking straight down at the ground. Mm -hmm. like they'll head pack back, and then they're just looking straight down. And then they wonder why they get pulled forward. Like your your chest and your body follows your head. So if it's looking down, it's going to pull your chest down too. So um, I obviously don't know specifically, Kyle, if that's what you're doing. But this is something that I do see a lot. Is like if I tell someone to pack their neck back, they just immediately look down. More like chin to chest instead of like like packing your neck back is like giving me a double chin. Uh, like, you know. And But if you pack your chin to your chest, most people look straight down. And like that's not the direction that you – generally want to be like I generally still like the gaze to be straight out or at least like across the room where the floor meets the wall kind of thing instead of straight down so I think that some people overdo that like neck packing um and it throws them off that way which it sounds like maybe you're getting possibly pulled forward off the ground and that could be why you're a little bit slower or like Trevor said you're over emphasizing and you're focusing too much um on that of it and forgetting the other things that are slightly more vital yeah <laughs> this is a very generic question how do you do your shoulders <laughs> we're non-specific to individual muscle groups for the most part you know it's predominantly squat bench and deadlift with accessories that build squat bench and deadlifts how she looks is just a matter of consistency from time and diet and nutrition that that changes the structure of her body um there's not a lot of lot of raises in Riley's programs or, or things like that so sorry to yeah, no, I don't put them in very often. We actually started a segment today for Culture Nutrition that talked about the oblique uh, shoulder raise, which is dealing with more with creating position for squat habit and whatnot. So it's not, we're not very body part specific, except for body parts that build a lift, like specific tricep work or specific, you know, um, core work or specific things like that, specific pec work or somebody's weak at the bottom of the bench and stuff like that. But for the most part, we don't generalize those areas. We specialize in the big three and then around those. 
I think Edward Blair asked about if we've tried the Kabuki deadlift bar also. No, I have not. I have been asked that question about 14 times this week. <laughs> I have not tried the Kabuki deadlift bar. I hear mostly good things and it has great flex, but there's a lot of whip if you're a fast speed puller. Uh, people have also asked me why I'm spending so much time long pausing my deadlifts recently. And that is because I'm very, very efficient off the floor and that speed and whip tends to throw me off balance at the top. So I'm spending a lot of time slowing down my mid range and getting comfortable with finding positions. So because a lot of meets are starting to incorporate the Kabuki bar and here it has a lot of whip, I am preparing for that. What a novel concept, preparing for the bar ahead of time. So that's why I'm doing a lot of long pause, mid range, traditional work for my deadlift. If people are wondering why I'm holding like insane weights for long periods of time, is because I want to slow my fucking deadlift down because I know that I lose position at the top if I get off balance. So I'm going to lift slower, so to speak. I, I try to like not pay that much attention to what kind of bar I'm deadlifting on. Um, obviously, I notice a, a difference if I'm pulling on a stiff bar, but like. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't notice too much of a difference with any deadlift bar that I use. Um, I know that some people complain about like the knurling differences and all that kind of stuff, but like that's totally the, the last thing that I'm absolutely thinking about. Like if I nail my position, I'm going to lift it regardless. So I don't really care what bar it is. Um, I have heard that this, like the, the whip for the bookie bar is a lot better. I don't really care <laughs> if, if it's a deadlift bar and it's in, if it's a deadlift bar and it's in competition, I'm going to lift on it and that's fine. I'm not going to be like, well, I need to change my position because I know that this bar has more or less whip. I'm just going to fucking lift it. I really don't like, I don't, I don't pay that much attention to it. Uh, I don't pay that much attention to it to where it is something that is going to affect me. <laughs> he's just trying to interject his opinion he's like i want on this podcast too yeah. <laughs> or she i should say she who yeah, was like i deadlift I, I i i like to lift uncomfortably i know that sounds a little strange but i don't like to lift in my favorite rack one time i don't like to always use the deadlift bar i don't like to always use my favorite other bar if we've traveled around and gotten places where they have like a road bar or a bend bar <laughs> I'm okay with using it because if I have a good successful session on the shitty bar, the meat day just feels that much better. You know, yeah. Being a little um, uncomfortable, is, yeah. You know, that way you're not hyper focused on what you got and what you uh, what you need to have. People do that. You know, there's people who go to the gym and they have to have this platform, they have to have this rack, they have to have this bar. You don't get that when you go to a meet. So why would you train that standard that you have to have this, you have to have that, you have to have this? Because you're only hurting yourself in the long run when it comes to meat when it's not your environment that you can control. Be a little, be a little comfortable with, you know, a different rack, a different bar, a different whatever, and, and just, you know, that makes the meat easier. I feel like you're also like giving yourself more opportunities to find excuses. If you're like, oh, well, I've never lifted on this deadlift bar before, so that's why I dropped it. No, 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 you no. You dropped it because you used straps the entire fucking prep. <laughs> yeah, like if you if you limit just limit the amount of excuses that you allow yourself and it'll be so much easier to take accountability for why you did or didn't have a good meet day just limit the amount of excuses just it's fine it's fine everyone's fine <laughs> it's fine everyone's fine the sun was in my eyes we're indoors <laughs> i know <laughs> all right what's our next what's our next question um, my natural squat stance is my natural hip width any tips for a quote unquote narrow squat Tips for a narrow squat, uh, we, we talked about high bar, 
because the, the more narrow your squat stance, and Edward Blair is on there is a great example of someone who squats extremely narrow and on the higher bar setting, is it's very hard to sit on top of your legs with a low bar without creating some type of good morning type, type position. You see a few female USAPL lifters who kind of get away with it, but they're not very big. The bigger you get, the more in your, way, in your own way you will get. So you'll probably have to gravitate towards a little bit of more of a mid or higher bar position. And it definitely helps if you don't have great ankle mobility to add a heel to compensate for that lack of ankle mobility. But a narrow stance squatter really has to live and die by their ankle mobility anyway. So the tip would always be focus on your ankle mobility. Make sure they're really moving and get down there. Uh, move your bar up a little bit. And really hyper-focus on developing quad strength and torso strength less so than hip strength. The low bar squatter, somebody who really specializes in a true low bar is using more low back and hip. The higher bar narrow stance squatter is using a lot more quad and torso and a lot less hip. That would be my, my tip for you is to really narrow your focus down. Um, Andrew Sia, uh, he just took the Canadian all-time world records for 181. The total, the deadlift, the squat, I believe. And he squatted, shit, I think he squatted like 644, 655, something around there at 181. He's a high bar squatter and relatively narrow. And we just live in a world of front squats and high bar squats. I don't ever really have him low bar squat. And off season when I don't want to beat his shoulders up, I just have him SSB, you know, I'll switch between blocks between SSB, high bar, SSB, high bar, and front squats. And that's helped a lot. But his quads are ginormous. And he's a narrow high bar squatter and obviously a very strong squatter, 181, 644, 655, whatever it was. That's what you have to focus on is quad strength and a higher bar. Yeah. Uh... I don't have a whole lot to add to that because that was kind of the same thought process that I had as well. I mean, that's, it's fine that your squat stance is narrow. Like there's nothing wrong with that, especially if that's your stronger position. So if that's your stronger position, you just continue to make those positions stronger. So I don't think that anyone else, I don't think that anyone complains about like building or having more quads. So this is like a cool problem for you to have is just building more quads, building more torso, um, what have you. So if it's your strongest position, then it's fine. But I don't, I don't have a whole lot of difference of opinion to add here because where you went with it is what I was thinking as well. So what do we got next? Um, long pause over shorter pause rep, which is more beneficial? So the intent of a pause, obviously we have a pause bench press, is to train the standard of the pause bench press, but the real intent is to spend more time in the most precarious or weakest position. You're not going to get a significant benefit between a one second, two second, three second, four second pause um, as far as the bench press or the squat is concerned. Really, when I put a three second pause for people, it's because they cheat the pause in the first place. And I know if I give them three seconds, they'll actually pause it for one. <laughs> Alexis comes to mind, like her two count pause becomes yeah. basically touch and go. So I was like, okay, we're gonna do a three count pause, which actually gets me like the one and a half, the two second pause. So when I do like three second pause work and stuff like that, it's really just to get them to control the bottom a little bit longer because everybody counts fast under the bar. Um, stretch reflex will last somewhere between seven to eight seconds. So unless you're pausing longer than that, you're still dealing with stretch reflex and stretch shortening cycle that's in there. So it's not that important to worry about the length of your pause. It's more just important that you're legitimately pausing. And while you're pausing, you're holding tension, not relaxing under the bar. Because there are some people that you can program, like myself, I'm a little bit of a sinker and driver. Uh, a long pause makes no effect or difference on me. I pause all my last reps, long pause, and they move just as fast as the first rep because I can launch the shit of the bar with my body. But it doesn't do anything because I don't hold the bar tension on my chest the same way. But if you give me like a long pause photo, I will fucking fry out fast because that's where I'm really weak within the bench press is that bottom range position. 
So it's just a matter of identifying what you're trying to work on. If you're working on holding tension or building time under tension in a weaker position, you can add a little bit of a longer pause, but it's not super beneficial to see a difference between one, two, and three, you know, four second pauses if the stress reflex is still there for seven, eight seconds anyways. So I've seen people argue about, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I have seen people in the past argue about like a long pause being useless. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with that because how many of us have either like majority of us who have been competing or have competed multiple times have probably received a long press command. And I know that I give a long press command. So um, like I would rather the lifter be prepared for the fact that they could get a very long press command and why not be used to that versus if you're always like, practicing this like quote unquote shorter pause in the in the gym and then you get to the meet and someone holds you a little bit longer you're not used to that so why not be prepared for the potential to have a longer pause on meet day so that way you control all the variables possible and once again you give yourself less excuses like oh like the amount of people that have complained about my press command stop giving yourself excuses train a better pause command in the gym or control the bar a little bit better you know like those those are things that are within your control. How you control the bar, how you pause, how you look to standard, those are all within your control. So you can blame the judge for whatever it is, like giving you a long pause command or making you hold the deadlift, um, making you hold like the deadlift at the top longer. Like those are all things that you can do that no one wants to do, but you can do those in the gym and then it's gonna prepare you better for meet day. So that way on meet day, you're not like, damn, they made me hold my pause. Well, no shit, that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to uphold that standard so that way you lift to the same standard as everyone else. Um, so I don't necessarily see an issue with like a long pause. Like I've seen people complain about in the past. Generally those people that complain about long pauses are the people that don't have a long pause command or a long pause anyways. Um, but also from what I've seen, people that I have given long pauses to people that I've given long pauses. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, uh, I have, I have two puppies in the house cause I'm dog sitting this weekend. Um, so they are like easily distracted and they're running around and chasing each other and being hellions. But, um, generally the people that I give long pauses to when I have consistently given them a long pause for the full block and they, you know, hit like a rep PR or something with their long pause, when they go back to that pause bench press, it feels so much more powerful and so much faster. And they generally end up building their regular pause bench because they built up their long pause as well. So I don't necessarily see why there was any. Uh, argument over a long pause being worse for you because like realistically if you long pause it and you lose all the tension on the chest and then you struggle to press it up um, you're building your concentric force because you're having to find and to press up after you lost the tension so mm -hmm. you know like regardless you're building something in that aspect to the point where I don't understand how it can be necessarily argued that it's a poor variation I guess yeah yeah, I, I usually like to put them in closer to meet peak, just like, like you said, so lifters are prepared for a longer press command if they get one on the meet and they're not panicked by it, you know, just training that, that variability that they won't be panic because any meet we've been to, somebody comes off the bench press like, oh, they're making me hold it forever. It's like, no, you were still moving the bar, but that's okay. <laughs> you just got to use it. Get used to it. All right, what's our next question? Yeah. Okay, DOMS, personal theories and tactics to mitigate. All right, so this was an interesting one that Matt Berry, I know I had answered my, asked my story, we'll go into more detail. Uh, for years and years and years, the bodybuilder believed that 
GOMS, which is uh, delayed onset muscle soreness, that soreness we feel after tough workouts or a lot of volume, um, was caused by lactic acid buildup. And science has shown us over the last like 20 years that that's not the case at all. Lactic acid actually leaves the muscle in a matter of seconds and minutes. So it's not an irritation of lactic acid that's causing that. That's the burn we feel when we're doing reps. We feel the burn from the lactic acid, but that mitigates in a matter of seconds and minutes and it's gone. It doesn't cause the soreness. Chris Beardsley goes into great detail in all the scientific studies on this and what it actually is. Um, and the real answer is we don't know. We don't know what actually causes that level of soreness to come in, what causes delayed onset muscle soreness. We know it's a matter of, of stimulation. There's a few theories on it. They think it's micro trauma from eccentric loading causing small micro tears in the muscle. But then there's also a calcium ion that's released every time we make a muscle contraction and the calcium is acidic. So calcium ions can get trapped within the muscle. Much of the theory of the lactic acid programming, he, he talked about that the calcium ions can cause friction and irritation every time we move because they're still in there, they're, they're stagnant. Um, and there's also studies that show that even though foam rolling doesn't necessarily improve ranges of motion within a joint long term, it does mitigate the soreness. So there's some, there's some theory to that level of calcium irritation causing the soreness because if you're doing the foam rolling, you're pushing out that calcium ion that's sitting in the, in the muscle, you're getting some, some flushing of the blood and so forth and circulation happening in that area. The real answer is we don't know the full reason. And it, it Chris kind of hints that it may be a combination of that eccentric microtrauma as well as the calcium ions rubbing together, causing that friction, causing that pain. It's in his book, Strength is Specific. He goes over every scientific study that relates to it. And the general answer is this may be causing it, but we don't know for sure. Um, as far as when we experience it, obviously we tend to experience it when we've changed some level of volume or stimulus where we've taken a break from certain things and cause it. Or if we did a lot of like eccentric tempo, which is why people think the eccentric might be the main contributor because eccentric causes a little bit more damage to the muscle, uh, muscle belly itself and the muscle cell itself with a little bit more friction. If you want to avoid, avoid is not a word, avoid a lot of soreness, keep the volume lower, keep the eccentric component lower, you know, you know think, do things that don't fatigue that specific muscle too much. But I can say that soreness isn't an indicator of a great workout. It's not an indicator of a bad workout. It's not an indicator of progress. It's just disruption to the system that needs to heal like anything else and change out. Um, you're not going to get bigger or stronger just because you're sore. And if you're sore, that doesn't also mean that you can't train either because that is peripheral fatigue to that localized muscle. It is not you know, centralized fatigue to your nervous system. You can still go and do things. And the more you actually move, the less sore you'll be because you're creating that circulation, which would clear those calcium ions that are stuck there causing the irritation. So the answer to soreness is literally move more, stretch more, do more, but not under a significant load, enough to increase circulation. If you've ever been really, really sore, just hop in a pool and swim. When you get out, you're moving better. If you've ever been really, really sore in the legs and the next day you did like three sets of 20 bodyweight squats, you start moving better. So you can clear out that soreness by bringing fresh, nutri fresh nutrients and blood flow to that muscle group and help you. But you also don't need to chase that. That was an old mentality of thought. If you're not dragging yourself out of the gym or sore the next day, you didn't work hard enough. And that also goes toward that burnout effect that you're doing too much. It's not how much you do. It's how much you can recover from and then sustain and grow from there. We're creating a neurological stimulus for strength. We're not necessarily creating a stimulus for size, per, so to speak. So we don't need to do as much volume as the bodybuilder does, but we need to place the majority of that volume on those main lifts. Yeah, majority of people after a workout, what they do is they go home and they sit down. They sit down and they start watching TV or they start working or whatever, but they sit down and there's no, it's like you're just being stagnant there and there's no blood flow there. Um, even if you're like, even if you're someone who doesn't necessarily like just get on like, 
the treadmill or the bike when you're done working out like you don't necessarily need to do something like that but like if you're someone who takes a walk later in the day or you have dogs or whatever like whatever it is as long as you're moving during the day like trevor mentioned like you're going to dissipate some of that fatigue you're going to dissipate and you're going to flush and circulate more blood to flush out kind of that to quote unquote flush out that soreness but if you're going home and immediately sitting down and that's all that you're doing for the rest of the day like of course you're going to be sore everything that you just worked out is going to essentially like seize up from just sitting down so ways to get rid of it is literally just move more like it's as simple as that take an extra walk make it 20 minutes 15 minutes it was a huge proponent in in louis version of his conjugate system which people mm -hmm. seem to neglect is those mini workouts Three yeah, three to three to ten minutes every day of you know like walking the sled which had no eccentric load, it was concentric force only, or using like micro mini bands the day after. So if you did a, a dynamic effort bench workout with a bunch of bench accessories and your chest and triceps were short the next day, he would have you doing mini bands up and just like pet flies for 100, 200 reps and triceps push ups with a micro mini. It's not a lot of resistance, and there's again reduced eccentric load with those micro mini bands, and you're creating blood flow in those areas, helping that peripheral fatigue dissipate, but also bringing fresh nutrients so you can help that muscle tissue repair. Yeah, there's a, uh, I know people, people shit on those days a lot, but like, they're so like low impact that they're not, they're not necessarily affecting your main squat bench or deadlifts. Like they're not affecting any of that. They're literally just pumping more blood through. Um, you know, you can quote unquote say that it's working on like GPP and conditioning or whatever. And it's probably not, but like, it's just helping you move better. Like if you're someone who doesn't take walks or doesn't move consistently, or you're pretty sedentary, like special exercise days or like those uh, whatever, whatever else, like the mini workouts and stuff like those are probably good for you. Dragging a sled doesn't require much and it feels good. Always makes my hips and like quads and stuff feel better when I like yeah. drag sleds and stuff. So I don't know why it's uh, I don't know why it's shit on so much. People basically. lump the whole thing together, you know, but this yeah. is reality is if, if you want to move better, move more. That's where the quality yeah. is going to come from by moving more and getting used to using your body more. You'll become more efficient at using your body and more spatially aware as well. And yeah, you know, they, they, they shit on the whole thing because they see one aspect of it, but they, they miss the, the point, you know, um, they, they, they don't see the benefit. And then people also forget, like we have a reverse hyper because of Louis Simmons. We have a glute ham raise because of Louis Simmons. We have the back attack because of Louis Simmons. We have the popularized jump stretch bands using for common resistance that everybody uses for warm up or rehab because of Louis Simmons, you know, nobody knew who Dick Hartzell fucking was until Louis Simmons put all this out there, you know, so they, they shit on the whole system. It was a little wild, a little crazy and the mechanics don't match raw. So people want to shit on it for that reason. But there was a lot of good to take away from it as well. Yeah. All right, let's get to our next one. Uh, losing chest position on the squat coming out of the hole. What tips or cues can help this? That's not losing chest position if your chest is caving down. That's losing upper back tightness. So you're confusing chest position with upper back tightness. So if your chest is dropping down, then you're unable to hold that external rotation to hold the bar up nice and tall. You need to strengthen your shoulder external rotation. You need to be able to hold that position. If you can't hold the position, you're probably wedging yourself in tighter than you can control. Open your hands up wider, try a talon grip, those kinds of things. Work on your lat length and mobility so you can get into a better external position because your lats and your pecs are internal rotators. So if your pecs are tight and your lats are tight, it's going to pull your shoulders down, which means you're going to drop your chest, which is losing chest position, so to speak, as you called it. But really, it's, it's having a poor upper back strength to hold the position in the first place. So you need to work a lot more on mid-back strength, rear delt strength, external rotation strength, and mobilizing those shoulders if you want to wedge your hands in close so you can hold the pattern and hold the position. Because like I said before, you know, there's no such thing as misgrouping a raw lift. You weren't strong enough to hold the position. There's no suit for you to grind into or gear, uh, uh, manipulate against. You are the support system of your own body, so you have to learn how to support your own body. 
strength and external rotation. We put it up a lot. The bands aren't to overhead squat where you can work on squatting with external rotation, having the arms back and the shoulders back and your scapula is depressed down. You have to learn how to strengthen and hold that position better. That's the only way you're not going to so-called lose chest position is going to create a stronger back position. This is, that's exactly where I lose um, my squat. And uh, like, it's, it's not that my upper back is weak. I can, I can row so much. I like, I'm very good at rows. Like pretty much any row variation that Trevor gives me is not necessarily a struggle. The only one that's really a struggle is like seal row. Cause you take my legs out of it. But um, <laughs> like, I think I have them in twice a week right now. Please don't yeah. give me more. Um, but uh, like, so it's not that my, like Trevor's mentioning, it's more of like conditioning the position. Like my, um, my upper back is strong, but holding external rotation in my shoulders is weak. So that it's my upper back can hold it. It's fine, but I just cannot control my shoulders from, internally rotating to come out of the hole so that's something that i'm working like i have daily external rotation work that i do and that's just like easy banded external rotations um i have the prone swimmers in my program like these are things that i work on every single day so that way i can hold the position better and like with like the uh banded external shoulder rotations that i do um like right now it's i can like barely externally rotate with a mini band you know, like that's hard for me. So that shows that that's something that I need to work on. So like I start with the micro mini band and then I'm going to progress like the mini and then I'll progress to make it more resistant or like start adding in, making it like five pounds and increase to 10 pounds or whatever. But the goal is to just continue continuously progress working on my external shoulder rotation because that's where I actually lose my upper back, not from lack of strength, but from lack of being able to hold the position because my shoulders don't want to hold the external rotation. So those are things that I have to work on daily now. And the video that Trevor recorded today or that we recorded today for the culture page that gets posted on Saturday, that's something that I'm also going to work on every single day because it conditions a pattern for me to where I'm in hip extension for the squat. And I'm also externally rotating and pulling um, myself into a better position. So it's just like finding... Wow. Hip flexion. flexion. Yeah, flexion. Um, sorry. Um, so that's where I'm going to be pulling myself into the position that I need to be to strengthen so that way I don't lose my squat. Excellent. All right. I think that's pretty good for today. Got a lot of questions. Got some good information there. Uh, I don't want to burn people out on us, so burn bright. <laughs> Thank you guys. You all joined the podcast live and ask questions. We appreciate you all. Thank you even more to those of you who share the podcast every single week. That's really awesome of you. It helps grow the podcast, helps spread more awareness of the information we put out there, which helps you both mentally and physically. Thank you to all of you who support the, the supplement company, Culture Nutra, at Culture Nutra. And thank you all of you who've tried the Cultivating Strength program, which is your first week's free if you want to try it. The link's in Riley's bio. The link's in my bio. You can do the Cultivating Strength. It's four days a week powerlifting program. Um, deloads every fifth week. So it's, you don't have to think about it. There's no coaching involved. It's just a program for you to follow. So appreciate all you guys who are on there and every one of you who shared it, ladies too, who share these things. Riley, I will see you next week. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> thank you all for joining. I hope you have a good one.